Hello and welcome to Born to Dance, the podcast for Matthew Bourne's new adventures that explores and questions why dance moves, inspires and excites us. I'm your host, Paul Smethurst, resident artist for New Adventures, and every week I will be chatting to members of our extended family to discover their journey through dance and how it has impacted their lives. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's not often enough that an organisation's board of trustees gets placed in the limelight. They are usually in the wings, the quiet and steadfast foundation of the company, guiding and steering us through all types of management decisions. However, through our series of conversations celebrating the joy of dance, we thought it pertinent to bring one of our trustees centre stage, a place she is certainly accustomed to. Our guest today is renowned as a presenter on television and radio. She is known and loved for her warm and generous spirit and interviewing style and has the magical ability to make all in her presence feel at ease and special. She is equally at home interviewing A-list celebrities such as Oprah Winfrey and Will Smith as she is chatting with the general public. And in 2019, she was awarded an OBE for services to broadcasting and diversity. Today, however, the tables will turn and I will be interviewing the legend herself. No pressure on my part. She is, of course, the vice chair of our board, the eminently inimitable Brenda Amanis. Welcome to Born to Dance. Hello, darling. I should make you my agent. (laughs) (laughs) What an introduction. Did you you enjoy that? Was it strange for you to to be being introduced? Well, the... The more you spoke, the more I thought, is that me? It's like when you write your CV, you don't realise how much you've done until you write your CV, do you? You don't, you don't contemplate your career or think about what you're doing. And that's for the centre stage bit. I don't know where you're going with that. I actually love the bit that you're doing. And that's where I feel most comfortable, obviously. Because on this side of it, it's a completely different energy when you're on the other side of the microphone, as it were. Well, I was I was going to say I feel a little bit nervous like interviewing you because I find you, you know, you're so experienced and you're so amazing at what you do. And we've just listed a few of your accolades. Have you got any sort of top tips for me? Thinking about interviewing you. What well, you know what? I'm, the first thing I said, I've said I was nervous doing this because I'm always nervous. And I always said to myself that when I stopped being nervous for the interviews that I did, then it meant it was time to stop because I was being too complacent and I didn't care anymore. So nervous is a good thing. Nervous means you care. So that's a good thing. But you've just got you've just got a natural personality. For me, it isn't just about, you, you don't have to be an interviewer and be Parkinson. You, know? you don't have to be at the top of your game in that respect. For me, the joy of it is communicating and getting to know people. And, and I'm curious. I'm like a cat. I'm absolutely curious about people and human nature and that's why I love being in the media I just I just love people I just love learning about them and creatives in particular I am just fascinated with their process their motivation their inspiration that's what gets me out of bed in the morning well I said that in the in the introduction that you you have this amazing ability to just make people feel relaxed I've met you a few times and I feel like I've known you forever and I always just feel so at ease and you've just got this lovely warmth and generosity about you have you always been like that you know was, is that was that you as a kid 
Yeah, I, I have parents who have this have this theory that like you don't look up to people, you don't look down to people, you treat everyone the same. And my my, my my dad used to say, the same way you rise, the same way you can fall, you know, Brenda. And it's true. And I just really, I try and treat people as humans and, and not strip away their status or their being or what, you know, their success, because that's usually the reason that you're interviewing them or in their presence. But I try and connect from a human level. And, I, and you know, for example, if I go and interview a, uh, a celeb and they're having one of those days or the person before me the journalists come out and say oh they're, not, they're really struggling they're really horrible you just, uh, I don't naturally assume that they're a horrible person they may just be having a bad day um so I, I try that's what I try and do I try to keep it simple I guess is the best way to put it and and re- recognize the fact that you know we all have two eyes and, and one mouth and one nose and we'll go to the toilet even the queen and we're just normal human <laughs> beings doing extraordinary things I think no, I think it's that leveler, isn't it? It's that there's that you know, like we we are all just human beings, just d- doing our chosen path, and um and actually you get this beautiful opportunity to just connect and to and to get a little glimpse into different people's lives and not as I said, not just celebrities, but you you know you talk to the general public. Um, do you change the way that you interview depending on who it is, or is it just like right? I'm Brenda. I'm talking to this person today. Off we off we trot. I go in like a child, really, I guess. And sometimes I forget. And sometimes I think I'm probably slightly too informal in some situations, <laughs> if I'm to be honest. You can crack a jelly and no, 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 this isn't quite right. But you probably know as a performer, you probably have your own coping mechanisms. And mine is just to be human and be normal and not mm-hmm. pretend to be anything that I'm not. And I'm not an academic. You know, I don't operate on that level. I don't know. And the reason I kind of, I mean, I didn't study um, the arts. You know, I went to a normal secondary school, but I just, it, it resonated me with me from the heart, I guess. And so I'm always curious and I can get sent to, to cover an exhibition or an artist or a production that I know nothing about the day before. And for me, the thrill of it all is to, is to, is like being at school. It's like learning about it and the bits that you don't know, the people that do know fill in the gaps for you. So you ask questions and they may sometimes sound naive, but also you have to rem- remember when you're doing t- especially on television, that the, the demographic is so broad, you can't please everybody. So it's trying to get the balance, not sounding stupid, but not, but not sounding like you're dumbing down the art, for want of a better analogy, but that you're trying to share and communicate what the artist or the dancer or the filmmaker wants to share with their audiences. And it's just finding that balance you know, asking the questions that stimulate and motivate them, but also trying to explain to a wider audience who probably don't connect or eating their fish and chips, you know, on a Friday night and just happen to be in front of the telly to try and get them equally engaged in what you're doing. And I think there's also, I'm stimulated by, I think if you ask one of my values, I think it's, I'm a very visual person. I like, without sounding crap, beautiful things, things that look, interesting or fascinating or beautiful beautiful sounds like you know just you know like gorgeous boys and you know and and high art and top fashion no it's just that it's it's the creation of stuff and the presentation of stuff and the way we see it and feel it is what motivates and inspires me have you had any interviews where you've been like oh my goodness this is really tough and and how have you managed to get them onto your side or have you been able to yeah, very few. I remember one of the most interesting, when I first started my um, um, my job as an arts correspondent, I think, and it was early in the career, and I was sent to interview a classical conductor. 
And I could tell, and, and also because you have to, there's no hiding it, I'm a black woman, and so I'm very different. And I walked in, and you you, you pick up a vibe whether somebody's in, either interested in you or not. And I could, he looked shocked when I walked in, and I won't name, and um, he's deceased now, because I remember when he, because he stuck with me so much. And I walked into the room, and he looked me up and down. And um, I said, I've been sent from the channel. And one of the questions, he, he was a lead conductor for two orchestras. And I was asked by my editor to ask, was there a difference? Is there a, does he take a different approach in conducting? And I asked the question, you know, a young lady clearly know nothing about classical music. You simply cannot compare orchestras. So I, you kind of sit there, and this, this is early in my career. And then in front of the orchestra, he was the young lady from the channel, because um, I was working somewhere else before, proceeded to ask me whether I would compare you with blah, with the other, and he mentioned the other orchestra. And you know when someone just does something to make you feel really small, and I just sort of go, "Is this really for me? Is this really for me?" But you, you it was one bad experience, and then I had another where um, I was sent with. Um, we had a, a trainee cameraman who was a young guy, a young boy, and um, we were sent to interview a, a hugely famous interviewer. Actually, he uh, and I, as so we walked past and we set him up, I heard him say, "Oh, they sent the work experience." <laughs> Which I actually quite found um, quite funny, but for how condescending. There were those moments, but they all become part of your experience, really. My thing is you don't get bitter, you get better. Now, Brenda, you are the star of, of this conversation. So I'm going to delve a little bit deeper into, into you and your life and especially your relationship with the arts and, and dance. Now, of course. I work for New Adventures. This podcast is about New Adventures. And I kind of skimmed across it in the, in the introduction. You know, you've got all these amazing accolades and all these different hats that you wear for your work. You're a very busy woman. What drew you to join our board of trustees? What Because what, that's quite a commitment, actually. So, so how did that connection come about? Um, I think it came after, I, I think Matthew must have thought I was a stalker. <laughs> and this through my work, really. I remember years back, going to see um, Play Without Words at the National Theatre. And I sat in that auditorium and I thought, what on earth is this? It, it oh, what's the word? I, I, I was like I am now, couldn't find the words. You know, sometimes you, it's like when you're a, t- a teenager and, you go, and, and some cute person walks past you, but you can't find the words, you just know, oh my God, this is amazing. They are beautiful. It was that kind of awestruck feeling of, this isn't not really dance, not really a play, it's a play without words, it's a it's music, what is it, what is it, what is it? But what it was, was absolutely amazing and inspiring and visually stunning. And I felt, I didn't know, I felt like I was in a theatre, but I was in a film, I was just um, seduced into this amazing different world. And it, it was when, it was one of those moments um, and one of those productions that really hit me in the, to the core. And that's when I thought, oh, who is this Matthew Bourne? What does he do? Like, I really like this work. What else has he done? And I became more and more curious that anything that any production that he did, I wanted to cover and I wanted to see. So I fell in love. I fell in love with Matthew and I fell in love with his work and I fell in love with the dancers. So that's what it was. And every opportunity that I had as a correspondent to cover the work, because it was so interesting and because it was as... as um. How do you put it? I don't want to use the word highbrow as as 
at the top of his, his game, he was as a, as a choreographer and the productions were, and could quite easily be seen as elitist, they were accessible in that they, they connected in a way that I've been to see some, some operas and some ballets and what never did. There was something about it that had something for everyone. And, and I think that's the, that's the secret to his work. But there was something unique about his style and the productions and the, the quality of the, the professionals that stood out for me. I guess that's the easiest way of putting it. And, his, and it resonated with me in a way that um, is hard to describe. So I, I, I constantly followed. I got to know Matthew by doing that. And he's also a great interviewee. He's great to listen to. He's really inspiring the way he talks about his work and his genius. And, I was going to um, say, if you interviewed him. I find him really interesting. Yeah, several, yeah. again and again and again, I have <laughs> a lot of time. And he is, he's, he, he's just, you find, well, he's one of those people that you interview and you can just find yourself drawing in like you're with a man, you just get lost in the conversation because he has an amazing mind and is an amazing creative and he's not stuck up in any way and he's passionate about making work that, inspires and can appeal to everybody without losing quality and and I just love him for that and so I just kind of fell in love with the with the um, company and wanted to be a part of it so when I was asked um what I can say I had never considered being a child it hadn't even entertained my mind and it was a hugely compliment a complimentary proposal when it came and I was to be honest with you quite nervous about it and what could I bring to the table but I've loved it it's a really amazing collection of people doing great work totally committed to the company and really proud of the work that companies and we feel a sense of duty to um, live up to the reputation of the company and it, it's, it's actually it really is um, an honour to be part of, of, of um, the board. Well, it's, it's just so amazing that we have someone like you that's such a big fan and you're so passionate about the work and you are really entrenched in the inner workings. I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what a board of trustees might do, especially for an arts organisation. And I don't know whether, I don't know whether it's all top secret, but are there any things that you can share with us? Like what kind of decisions do you do you make? What 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 happens in in that kind of in, environment? What's it's, we're really there. We're, we're the support of. We're like the, the, the cheerleaders of the of the basketball team. <laughs> we're just there to support the great work that's being done and to make sure that it's done. And you know that the due you know due diligence is there. The governance is there. That the the, the, the money is managed properly. That the that the talent is taken care of. That you know the dancers. You know there's a duty of care for the dancers. That Matthew is protected and looked after. The great work that's being done is continued to be done in the right way. And and then they know they've got a team that's there to support them. We're like critical friends when necessary. Of course, that's our job. But it's, it's hardly ever necessary because everything is above board and done so brilliantly. And we're a role model in terms of a company. So yeah, it's just we're part of the team, but on the lo the next level down. And is one of the perks that you get to then come to all of our swanky opening nights. And I mean, you get to do that anyway, don't you, as part of your job. And now you're on the inside, you're part of the family. Yeah, but that, that is, you also do it from a very different perspective, though. You, 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 now, you, now I, where I did it, do it for work and obviously I have to detach from it for work. Now I'm doing it and I feel it's part of the family where, you know, you, you care in a very different way. You know, you sit there as nervous as probably Matthew is when you, for a new production because you want everybody to love it in the same way. Um, you want to make sure that the dancers are happy 
and you care about them. I need to I need to and want to get to know them better. That's the one thing I think I need to make want to make more time for. I want to know all of the family, not just, you know, mum and dad or auntie and Sue. <laughs> I want to really get to know and embrace everybody. That's important. So that is important to me. And um, I feel we do a better job when we get to know them too, because we can get see how they are and, and also see the company from their perspective. I think that's so we can feedback. Um, I guess in, in Matt's position or Etta's position, um, they where they know them intimate, intimately, it's nice to have be the outsider that can see, take a different perspective if need be. So yeah, it's it's a very yeah it's a different place of being and just, and seeing the seeing the production and also you get the exciting things. I love when we can go and watch the development of it makes you appreciate it even more and you see the work. I was going to say the blood and the sweat and the tears, but that could sound quite frightening. <laughs> I genuinely haven't seen tears, but you can see the level of work that. I think anyone, any dancer that becomes part of it, you can see how proud, proud they are and how they want to kind of gonna deliver. So that's great to watch. And it's just sick because you sit there like a kid in a toy shop. We really feel your support. And it's I'm so excited that you want to get to know the dancers a little bit more because they will just have a blast um, meeting you and getting to know you and, and hearing more about your story. And um, I'm going to move on now. So we ask all of our guests on the podcast about their earliest memory of dance. So I'd love to uh, invite you to step into the past, Brenda, and tell us a little bit about when you first encountered dance. Yeah, you know what? First I'll say is that I have a really poor memory. I've, I have, what I think, a short-term memory. So I take stuff in and I dump it. So I've had, I had to think about this carefully. And I do remember as a kid sitting in rooms and watching my parents and their friends dancing, and and they, and they would be from every and the music was really quite eclectic. It was everything from Elvis Presley to country and western to um, Jamaican reggae music. It was a real eclectic music, but they'd all be dancing. In, and and uh, for us, it seemed like silly dancing. It was ridiculous. <laughs> It just wasn't, it didn't seem cool. Maybe because it was mummy dancing and daddy dancing and uncle, uncle Isidore yeah. dancing, whoever. It just felt silly and stupid and that they did, that they couldn't dance. And me and my brother and sisters used to sit there and laugh and watch them doing their two-step and all of that kind of thing. So I remember literally fascinated watching these old, what was seemed to me like old people doing their thing <laughs> at parties. And, and was this my like parents were obviously very sociable. Well, it's parties, and sometimes it would be just be my dad mucking about with my mum in the room and, and swinging her around the room and going, she'd go, Tony, stop it, stop it, stop it. But they'd be done. He loved music, my dad. He's passed now. But he loved music and he loved to dance. He loved, he'd be over, he'd be doing, he, he had this two steps. And I remember going to a, a, a family christening, I think it was, in the summer. And we were all watching, all the kids were sort of, it was really hot, so the kids were watching, and they go, oh, come and watch this old man, come and see this. And they put on, I think, to entertain the kids. I think it was Soul to Soul, some song which we all knew, which was a really cool song. And everyone was circling, and I couldn't see the feet. I couldn't see it. All I could see were the feet. And then as gradually as I got through and saw, it was my dad in the middle of the room doing his two steps. So that were the, the earliest of memories. Also, I was part of, um, I remember uh, we, we were Catholic, so we kind of went to church and we could join church communities. And I was part of um, a, a dance group. <laughs> you can call it Do you know what? I researched this. I researched this. Check this out. Yeah. Sisters of Unity and Love. That was at school. That was my school. Yeah, that was my school group. Oh, wait, we had so this, was, school group. So this wasn't at school. And here it is. Guess who was the choreographer of Sisters of okay, Unity and Love? Moi, 
because I loved that. I did yes. love that. I grew up loving, as I got older, loving that. I loved music and I loved to dance. And we used to dance around in our, in the living room with the, with the hairbrush and I'd make up routines. And I think at the same time, I was remember Top of the Pops. There was, oh, yeah. there was Pan's People. I was fascinated with Pan's People. So I used to watch Pan's People and try and learn their routines. <laughs> I think there were... Oh, that, yes. So I used to try and copy their, their routines. And then I would take them to school and everybody would have to try and do it. And there was a, what's the name? There's a song. It's, um, I made up the routine to, and there was one really easy step. It was literally something like this. Oh, you no, know, you can't see. It was one step forward and a push out of your arm. I don't know what you call it. You probably know what that is. It was one well, of you those. described it very well, yeah. There was a girl in our dance group, bless her, called Grace, who couldn't dance for Toffee, and she used to really annoy me. But because she was in our friendship group, we couldn't get rid of her, but she just couldn't <laughs> get the routines right. And she used to really annoy us. Because if it's one time I was a bully, it would be then, because she used to, she just, she used to mess up my, my dance. She used to just mess up my routine. <laughs> so I remember my, I must have had mild, pathetic aspiration to be some form of a choreographer. So I remember that was one of my early things. It's, that was a school one. And there's Pan's people, there's mum and dad, and, and, and their tribe of wannabe dancers. So you were embarrassed by your parents dancing, but that certainly didn't stop you then wanting to, to dance yourself. Which I think no, I think, too. well, I must think I gradually recognised that it was in our DNA. We love to dance. We all love dancing. My brother, my dad brother, I remember he used to he used to make there's a song my dad had a, a song called it was called Sad Movies it was a sort of it was a sort of a it wasn't a ballad because it wasn't that slow it had a sort of beat to it but my brother mate used to have to do these dance dance routine to it because we um it, it was completely out of sync with the music but the steps were so fast and funky we me and my sister were really impressed with it because we should just stand around going go Trevor go Trevor go Trevor and he'd do these steps it was just like this flicking of I can't even remember, I can't know how to pull it, but it's like watching Happy Feet and the Penguins. But it, it was really impressive at the time. He'd be deadly embarrassed if he knew I was revealing this to anybody. But yeah, so, but we, we were, we were a, a family of wannabe Fred Astaire's. love that though because it sounds like it was just you purely dancing for the joy of it just for expressing well, we certainly weren't just... entertaining anybody <laughs> but ourselves <laughs> there was no professional element to it at all it was a, a spiritual thing i guess an expression a, which is what what is dance but expression and you know an expression totally it's the same way we dress to reflect our personalities i think we can do we do the same with dance it's just basically a, a way of expressing ourselves it's like a social ritual. Do you think that that has dissipated a little bit? Um, obviously not right now, because we, 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 you know, we're not really allowed to go out to, to the club or to go raving or whatever. Um, but I'm just thinking, like, is it a cultural thing? To ha Has that changed, do you think? that I've just got this beautiful image of your family doing that. And I'm like, oh, is that, is that something I, that's still... I think, happens? you know, I think with the, I think with the, in the age of social media and the likes and all of that, without sounding like some kind of um, wannabe psychologist, I think we've become too self-conscious and, and we, we, we don't know, we forget how to, everything is so controlled. You go on Zoom, 
and you, you, you do your makeup. I was watching the telly this morning and they were talking about an increasing amount of people that are getting plastic surgery because of Zoom and they see themselves in Zoom and they want to look perfect. And I think there's that, that, that aspiration for everything to be perfection has taken away our, our freedom and our, our natural way of being. We've just all become a bit locked up. And also, in a way, I think that's why we like dance, what dancers and why dance is so popular as well, even watching it. Because it, you just see these people that have allowed themselves to be free and express themselves and to the fullest, and you know, there's no restriction. And I think, of other subconsciously or otherwise, we all want to be do that. That's why we all sit there, hope, wishing, watching strictly. There's something about um, that kind of liberation, and as well as the glamour and the and the you know and the watching professionals and the, and the aspiration of it all. I think we all have this innate need and desire to express ourselves which dance affords us but we've just got too suppressed by culture and influence and the media and the like that we think we have to do something we have to do it perfect when now for me i'll be envious of anybody that just lets themselves go mm. i'd love to be able to just let myself go like that because i know even now when i go parties when i go out i'm thinking oh my god now i'm too old or too it's too bad but Amongst friends, my friends will tell you the mad cow in the middle of the room is moi. Because I'm allowed to be myself in the privacy of company that I know and don't ain't gonna judge me. There's nothing better than go, letting yourself go. We're gonna to go music, out, Brenda. There? I wanna I wanna see I wanna see the mad cow come out. I'm so excited. <laughs> when we're allowed to. We need to make that happen. that's a promise. That's <laughs> but a I promise. totally agree with what you're saying. I think there's something in uh that we with, with people using their bodies to express because we that's how we learned that's the first thing that we ever did you know was well you do it's a baby isn't it right yeah. as soon as you stand up as a baby what do you say they bounce up and down and you make them bounce up and down don't you you just come to call them and give them strength you know you just bounce, love them dancing and kids love to dance the kids don't care whether they know one step two step or like grace can't get them get the rhythm right they just let off and that's great that is amazing and we all do that we all want to do that yeah and certainly at new ventures it's you know it's one of our missions is to try and get as many people dancing as possible and to to feel to feel that joy through you know through the different workshops and the classes that we offer did you do dance at school was that something that was offered you know on the curriculum or was it just something that you did you know um, no I, I did drama at school though I was being pushed to be an actress actually my, my drama teacher and the like were, were convinced I was and wanted me to be an actress and I went to the National Theatre Youth Group and stuff but I'd be, I again I think I suppose at that age teenage all the self-conscious came in and I didn't like rejection and there was only certain parts I was allowed to play. And then I questioned it with the director. He said, well, we've got to be realistic. And I thought, well, you ain't, you ain't limiting me, honey. <laughs> and so I decided I was no longer going to be an actress. But I, I did dance. Um, I did dance classes out of school. I was, I was, I was part of this Caribbean dance group called Caribbean, where Cariba Skill and Bridges was like the name of the group. Well, we were, and we learned traditional West Indian dancing. So, you know, the, and we had the costumes. So, and I danced at Carnival every year which was exhausting, two days, like, felt like 10 hours on a, on a float, giving it welly for hours and yes. hours and hours is absolutely physically exhausting. But we did have, I did have, a, I was part of the, the Caribbean group called Bridges, but I love to dance, and we had that, obviously, Sisters of Unity and Love. <laughs> we had this really cool 
dance teacher called um called Cecil Goldston or something, I think he was named. And he looked like Errol from Hot Chocolate. <laughs> and he had the hips and we were convinced he wore a codpiece all the time, but we were teenage <laughs> girls, so you know our our imagination was going everywhere. And he had this thing about us thrusting our hips left centre, right centre, and he, he had this real thing about using your hips all the time. So I think that's where it kind of loosened me up a little bit. He was an amazing guy, actually, a big moustache like Errol, and these these sort of hypnotic hips, I guess there's a way of putting it, that got all the teenage girls going, oh my God, oh my God. And then, but um, yeah, I, so I, I had, you couldn't call them formal lessons, I went to dance classes, but no, never had the aspiration to be a professional dancer. I knew I wasn't, I wasn't that good. I just enjoy, genuinely enjoyed the whole experience. But I know that you've got some amazing moves. I actually, because I was doing my research for this interview and I saw you dancing, yeah, I think it was at Manchester International Festival or something, and you were just like busting oh, yeah. out. You, well, you can pop <laughs> a move. I, you know, that's Grace Under Pressure, that was. But when you're amongst <laughs> dancer, people that can really, really dance, and they say to you, come and join in, you don't want to mess up, do you? So you kind of find your inner... <laughs> Carlos Acosta or whatever it comes out and I found it at that moment and luckily they caught it at that moment. So tell us about how you then went from uh, you know school into the job that you do now I know that you ended up studying like media studies uh, so I did that, I, I did what was that decision? I did media studies when it was new and cool and I, and, and I did media studies partly because I didn't know quite what I wanted to be at the time and it allowed me to do radio it, it was uh, you could do um, print journalism you could do television and radio broadcasting and you learn things like film studies and and, and um, women's studies it, it was an eclectic program so it gave me time to think about what I really wanted to do and be so that's how I kind of got into that so the media started fantastic in terms of the foundations of be, what wanting to be a journalist I thought at school I thought I was going to be a pilot because I love to travel and then my career teacher said tip-top fitness tip-top intelligence and lots of money which do you have Missy Malice so that peed on my fireworks a little bit so that aspiration went out the window and I've toyed with teaching I knew I liked people I knew I'd like to communicate and I didn't want to be an actress because of because of the rejection and I didn't think to be honest I didn't think I'd be good enough there was all that I'm too self-conscious and um some media doing the media studies led me into journalism and that's how it evolved and I um finished my while I was doing my degree I went to interview an editor of a newspaper and he saw potential, the little P, and offered me a job. So I finished my degree and went and got a job straight away working on the newspaper. But to fast track from doing a print journalism, I my first job in television, Kilroy, um, booking booking audiences, and and every day was different. Every day we'd do something from um, anti-fur campaign to women's issues to or every day was a different subject, and that was what was really exciting about it. So that was my my entry into television but my passion for arts came much later I did news and current affairs then I worked with Sue Lawley on a political program and then I did breakfast time and then I did um fashion I did a clothes show for six years and I and I loved fashion fashion was my thing at the time but then I, I went and joined a independent production company that started to do a lot of art stuff so I started doing arts reporting for channel four 
And then it starts to you know, you do a story, then you do a story, and you think, oh, God, this is really me. This is really what I love. And that's how it evolved. And that's how I got into arts broadcasting and loved it. And then when they were revamping BBC London News, which was Newsroom Southeast, they wanted to funk it up a bit and change it and make it more reflective of London. And I was headhunted by the editor then and asked me if I fancied the job. And I thought, mm, why not? And I, I went for it and got it. So the rest is history, as they say. I stayed there for, what, nearly 20 odd years, doing other stuff in between, but loving the opportunity to meet all these amazing creatives and be creative with it. incredible opportunity. And you can really see, I've watched some of your interviews, you're, you're just real, like, curiosity, like you said, and your passion for it. Uh, what what is it that that made you stay for such a long time doing that that kind of work? Is is there something that really stands out? To be with you, if I, I if I had a penny for every time people told me I had the best job in the world, then I would be sitting on in Malibu <laughs> right now or something, you know. And and it did feel like that. It felt like a I'm in a city that I love. I'm in a city that is um, renowned for great arts and culture. And it's a city that is heaving with great creative talent. So what's not to like, really? And um, also, is always an opportunity to learn and grow and celebrate and share and, you know, highlight the, the, the amazing people that we have here doing great stuff and encourage collaboration, see gallery openings and go to the, the, the latest theatre production. It's a really hard job to give up and meet the greatest people in, in, in the in, you know, practitioners, what's not to like? Intimidating all the time, you know, fascinating all the time, um, scary most of the time, but wonderful in every single way. And the challenge was to try and make it accessible. For me, the thing was, I wanted to make arts broadcasting on the news accessible to everybody. I wanted everyone to see themselves reflected. I didn't just want to do all the highbrow stuff because it was cool and, you know, it was, I was privileged. I wanted to... Also, I, I got a real thrill from um, presenting up-and-coming talent. And in one minute, you do an interview with somebody who you had to beg your editor, please, please, I think there's something in them. And by the next week, next year, they're winning awards and they've blown up, you know, because they, their talent has been exposed to the world. And that's really thrilling. That You feel... For me, it was doing a service. It wasn't just about, you know, being swanning around, being lazy, lazy arty. It, um, it was about doing a service for the arts community and supporting the arts community. Well, yeah, I think you've touched on two things there. It's about that representation and unlocking this idea that the arts is, you know, really elitist and actually it, it is yeah. open to everybody and especially in London I think there's so much kind of free art and culture that we can get our teeth into uh, but it's, it's, it's about... But if you're into the arts you know that the trouble is yes. if you don't know that you can it can seem quite intimidating can't can't it and I think exactly. that's one thing we're desperately trying to do more of as new, new adventures we really want everyone to realise that it is for that the arts are, is for them and no matter where you come from, you know, I mean, I was a working class South London girl. I went, I went to the theatre with my school probably two or three times, if that. My parents never took me to the theatre or anything like that. So um, I know what it's like to feel like the outside. And I sometimes still do. There are still moments. It's like when you kind of walk into one of those big designer shops where the doors are closed and they only let you in if, if, you, look, if you look right. It can still be quite intimidating. And what I used to do when I got my job is I used to deliberately take friends with me 
that had never been to the theatre before, never seen dance before. I remember once, many, many years ago, I took a friend, one of my best friends, who was just not into the arts at all, to see a, another friend of mine, Brenda Edwards, who she was one of the first black soloists for the English National Ballet at the time, and went to, took her to see this dance. A, because I, want, I was so proud of Brenda, and I wanted to, someone else to share it with me. I took my friend to see the dance, and it was really quiet. I think it was, it was a Royal Opera House. I think it was a Royal Opera House, actually. And sat there, and then Brenda Dunham, and then a, <laughs> a male dancer came on and did a lovely jeté and on the stage, and, and she just burst out laughing because she'd been obviously she was looking at something else, <laughs> and caught this fit of hysteria and, <laughs> and couldn't control herself. And like sometimes you go to the theatre and you can hear these kids talking all their way through it because they're exciting or responding, and people are getting really annoyed about it because you know you go to the theatre and you're really quiet and there's a, a protocol and a way to behave, and you don't want to. It's difficult because you want people to respect the arts and the artists, but you also want people to be encouraged to feel that it's for them, and then they learn the protocol to a degree. But you want them to be excited in their own way too, you know, and respond to it quite naturally. So getting that balance, but I'll never forget taking my friend and that her her thing was just only oh you know, she'd never seen a fully fleshed fit ballet dance, male ballet dancer in that form before, and her response was just hysteria and then having to but control that, it. But then she loved it. After that, she'd go back and it was a different response. And it's such an authentic response, isn't it? And you know, there's nothing contrived about it. I sometimes question some people going to the theatre, is that just because that's what one does? Or, you know, it, it's that question of who do, who does it belong to? Is it, you know, it should be for everybody, especially, you know, with the Arts Council funding and public funding and, you know, our, it, it's, it, we want to open it up, don't we, to, to as many people as possible to yeah, experience Yeah, and it's just, it. it's just breaking it down. That's why I love the work, I don't know if you know, um, a Carla who had the hip hop Shakespeare company um, and who really broke down um, Shakespeare for young kids so that when they go, they understand it's a love story or it's a, it's a, it's a tale of, 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 I don't know, angst or whatever. They break, you break it down so that they can understand it. And I'm not saying that you have to dumb down the arts. That's not, that's not what we want, you know. It's just um, finding a way to communicate it in a way that resonates with the audiences that you wish to serve. So it may be, yeah, it might be an opera in all Italian, you know, and some people will like it, some don't. I think there's something for everybody and the arts should have something for everybody. But there might be another version of it in English or hip hop or whatever that resonates with somebody. And they may think, oh yeah, I really like that. I really like the story. I'll go and see another version of it. And then they find their way to daring themselves to see it some in Italian or whatever. And then they get, get blown away just by the costumes. They may not understand what the hell's being said, but there's something else about the production that resonates with them. And they, but they're in the doors. They're in the doors of these institutions that they before would never have, that would have run past and run into Nike or whatever. And that's, that's what we need to kind of try and encourage. Otherwise, Definitely. the arts will not last, you know. We're all getting older. We need new audiences constantly. Yeah, and that leads me really, really well on to um, the fact that you're such an advocate for developing and nurturing young people. That's something that you're really passionate about. Why do you think that it's important for young people to have access to arts and theatre? And especially, I, I, I'm really passionate about it being in school, being on the curriculum, because how else are they going to see it? But maybe you have a different point of view there. But what what is it that's important Well, for you? I believe the children are the future. That's it. <laughs> I do, I do. 
uh, and that, that essentially sums it up because where else do you learn collectively and share the experience of it than in school? And it's and and where else do you did your is your mind triggered that you can question that you can um, um, collaborate um, that you can grow than in school and if you're and if you're taught the value of the arts in school if you see the value of the arts if you recognise it's um, the, the importance of it all from a very young age and it's, then it becomes in your DNA and then you're not intimidated by walking through the doors of the Royal Opera House or sadly as well, you know, that you will go to a gallery and say, look, I may not understand what the artist was planning to do with it, but I know I like the colours and let me go back and read about it and maybe I'll understand it in a different way. Everything is scary and intimidating until you... Till you, till you, till you know it better. It's like any relationship. Remember your first, how you are on your first date, and how you are three months later, and then a year later, if they last that long, is very different. You know, it's just you. You have to open yourself up to these new experiences, and the value. I think no one can question the value of the arts. Sadly, in terms of the big picture and government and what's priority, we've we've seen the the consequences of that where it's not priority but we'll also feel the consequences of that because you know our children won't be aren't stimulated and they're starved of creativity I think that could be pretty dangerous teachers who are passionate about the arts will find ways to make it work in the school or find ways to allow kids to be expressive and creative you know artists will find ways to create and that's the and that's the saving grace of um the, the, the community, I think we're resi- they're resilient, they're innovative. Brenda, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the impactful pieces of dance that you've seen. Obviously, as part of your job, you get to go to lots of theatre and see lots of art, mm. and I'm very, very jealous of you. Uh, but are there anything, uh, pieces that you've seen dance-wise that really stand out, that have really affected you at all? Um... In, instinctively, I think for me, it's got to, um, apart from when I've got, I mentioned about Play Without Words because it, it left me gobsmacked, Alvin Ailey Dance Theatre. When I first saw them, I was almost in tears. A, because obviously they're, they're on a different level professionally. They're the most, it was the most beautiful thing in front of me. And also as a black woman, seeing classical pieces done by black dancers which is so rare so so rare to see I never had that but we never I really didn't see any black dance groups here in the UK at that level of professionalism and beauty and excellence it was excellence I think that's what it was for me I mean I felt so proud to see that that, that was possible I think I've never seen that before and it resonated with me in the on on many many levels so that knocks me they knocked me out completely and it was and so and then i kept bringing friends to see them telling friends to and i remember seeing packed houses of people that looked like me as well in the theater enjoying dance and it, you know it, it was it's classical dance but it was also that you know they had the african resonance you know they, they it was rooted in their own culture and that was important to me and it, and significant for me to see so that that was impactful of course it's the, the quality of the dancers but also it's the visual productions that get me and um, and sometimes that's that's the, a good way in particularly for young people so I've consciously I've, my daughter Marley well she's 16 now and I remember uh, wanting early for her to be connected with the arts and like I don't want her to feel any form of intimidation about 
wanting to be embraced in this beautiful world that I'm in, selfishly. But I took her to see the Nutcracker at the Coliseum and in her little tutu. And she sat there, and I'm sure she didn't get all of it, but I remember she touched her around and she went to me, thank you for taking me to this. It's like being in heaven. And yeah. that was the sweetest thing. And I always remember, she, what was she, about five, about six or seven then, if that? And the other production she really loved, she loved Zoo Nation because, again, she could resonate with the music and the dance that they did. She couldn't, you know, forget the story, but it was really cool. And so she loved, she got to see that. And then I took her to see, um, I think it's Christopher Wheeldon's um, Alice in Wonderland at the, um, at the, Royal, at the Royal Opera. And again, that the production values on that. I mean, she was just in awe. So, and I, th- and I think sometimes that's just the way in, just test them. They may not, they, they may not you know, get all of it, but once they, something resonates with them, there's a way to get them in. And then we used to bring, have to bring her friends and then I'd have to buy six tickets and then after her birthday, if I wanted to take it, buy 10 tickets to a production. But I feel it was, it's worth it because at least, A, new audiences are guaranteed because they'll tell their friends, who will tell their friends, who will tell their friends. And then they're having an amazing experience which they can share when I'm laying down low on the ground. And, and it's, uh, well, we don't want to think about that because that was it's a very sad thing. Uh, <laughs> it's but it, sounds like, it sounds like you're talking about this, the, the escapism that, that, that the arts provide and dance provides, this, this magic that you were talking about. And it's that really hard thing to define, isn't it, and to pinpoint. And for, for you, it feels like there's a real alchemy there of connection, of relationship, of of the spectacle of the visual but also uh, the, the the storytelling i think as well is something you yeah do. i think i don't think i could have put it better myself paul that's exactly it so that's and i get when i get excited i kind of lose my words and that's true because sometimes it, is, it feels like it's a spiritual thing for me obviously and there is i guess escapism is the one big word it is that and one of the things obviously that you've brought up a few times is music music being so fundamental being part of your upbringing and then connecting it to the art uh so we are asking all of our guests brenda to pick their favorite piece of music to dance to it might be in the shower it might be in the living room um and this is i'm so excited about your choice this is a snippet of what you've chosen so we are going to play candy by cameo parties I go to there's there's, there's this routine that everyone does and that's why candy is part of my club history my raving history and any party that used to go to particularly black parties from that mood that song comes on whether you're in the bar or in the toilet or you're sitting talking to your friends a minute comes around everyone congregates on the dance floor and does this set routine to this dance similar to what they call the American slide and you see them do it at parties and weddings. I think it's a cultural thing. But everyone knows or learns that that dance. So if you, whether you can dance or not, or whether you dance, whether you go to parties, you're the type of person that dances or not, the minute that song comes on, then everybody is on the floor doing this sequence. And it's amazing. So you have to learn it. You know, it's part of your, your so right. It's a much, much cooler version of the Macarena. 
basically is what you're saying. It is, yeah. It is, it is basically a rites of passage to your rave. If you don't know the candy, then you might as well not come out to the party. When do you learn it? Like, is it just something we just assimilate? Or did, did you have to, like, did you watch it on TV or on a video? And have to, well, like, I used to see it on, the, on films, particularly Black American films, if they had a party, then that they would they they be doing the the American slide and I I, I can't remember from, from early when I started raving every I used to see the elder people doing it and then so you learn it so it becomes part of oh if you can't do the candy you ain't cool so you go and learn it you practice with your friends or your sister or whatever um, I remember going to Paris with a few friends exactly and we went to a club. <laughs> And it came on, and we're obviously we're on the floor, and they didn't know it. So we had this circle of people around us while we did the candy, well, this this dance, that dance to candy, and everyone was learning to join. So we had to teach everybody at the club how to do this dance. I love that, and they were all French, but I bet you you still managed to teach them because you don't actually need words. Well, we, and that's the them. magic of dance. You don't have to be able to talk. Do so you just watch and you learn? You watch and you learn. Universal language of communication. Love it. Exactly. Um, and you told me that when you were pregnant and this music came, came on, you, you were there with, yeah. your, you know, with your daughter in your belly. I did. I was literally carrying my big belly when it came on up. I, it was my birth. I think we had my birth. It's Marley was born in October and it was the June and they've had a party for me. And I, and I remember literally holding my belly, doing two steps to the left, two to the right, two back, two forward, dipping back, holding my stomach. So... She, she, I, Marley said, oh, I'm not learning, I don't want to learn it. But I've seen her with her friends in the garden. They're already trying to learn the steps. And, I, and, I've, and I've showed a few of her friends. So it's, 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 you pass down the baton. Leads me on to one of my final questions for you, Brenda, because we sadly have to start wrapping up our, our conversation today. So, Brenda, I'm asking everybody on this podcast if they could turn any story, film or book into a Matthew Bourne production what would they pick so i'm going to throw that question at you anything coming to mind that you'd love to matthew to transform into one of his dance theater pieces wow we're talking about the brain of a genius who could turn anything into anything so i think it'd have to be something that would really stretch matthew and what have i enjoyed and what could i if i was to go in instinctively i really thoroughly enjoyed um the queen's get the, the queen's gambit recently on Netflix. I love the style of that. And I just think if in Matthew's hands, that would be incredible. You know, the costumes, the the look, I think he visually, with his creative team, it would be extraordinary. You could have the dancers as chess pieces and the imagination. The drug taking scenes would be out off the hook. I just think he'd do something really clever with something like that. Um, if I was to stretch him out of his comfort zone, I would love to see Matthew do something. And he could do something really modern with, a, with either the Black Panther, which would be completely out of his way, or Noughts and Crosses, which would be like a modern day West Side story. And I could see that would really kind of um, tick lots of boxes for us and that really stretch Matthew. I had this, this fantasy of him also doing... Um, um, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, but that was just for me. <laughs> I think I'm making this positive. I think anything you, he turned, okay. yeah. <laughs> I think anything he turned his hand to, but it'd have to be something that was big on drama or any of the Marilyn Monroe films, you know, Diamonds of Girl's Best Friend, anything like that that's got big production, glamour, escapism. I mean, getting getting Matthew to, and a Marvel movie together would be extraordinary. 
extraordinary. That is so up my and street. I, think you I could... want that to happen. Sure. <laughs> the marvel that's of Matt Bourne. Yeah. But um, and that's the thing about him. I think you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. He can turn his hand to anything, but I'd love to see the Queen's Gambit in his hands. I, I or Marilyn Monroe's. I think he. Film. I think he really loved that, and it was so. It's very like a collaboration with Les on the costume and set. Mm, I, I don't know. Watch this space, people. That that could that could happen. That'd be great, right? It would be really great, and I love that you. I love that you've really thought about what Matthew would would like to make, and and would really suit him. That's that's very generous of you. Whereas you know, other people have just been like, it does need a strong narrative, doesn't it, with him? Definitely, definitely. So, Brenda, we end our podcast with a bit of a silly quiz. It consists of ten quick fire questions about dance. There's no pressure. Uh, just answer whatever comes Why am I feeling the pressure then? <laughs> <laughs> because I said no pressure. It's the worst thing I could have said. Um, are you ready? As ready as I will ever be, sir. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Let's begin the Born to Dance quiz. Question number one. Whilst Matthew Bourne has run a dance company since 1987, the name New Adventures was not the original name. What was it called before? I should know this. I should know this. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Adventures in motion pictures. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. You got it. You got it. Question number two. Grande and Chico are two versions of what type of Spanish activity? Grande and Chico. Is it got busy dance? Yes, yes, yes. What kind of dance? What kind of dance? Oh, not, not flamenco. Or... Yes. Is it flamenco? Yes, flamenco. It is. <laughs> nice and simple. Question number three. The patron saint of dancers and actors is who? Oh, I don't know. Oh, you got a Etta, Etta Murphy. Etta. She should be. She could be the future one. It is Saint Vetus. Oh, I think I wouldn't. I genuinely didn't know that. That's something you learn something new every day. There you go. There you go. That's what we're here for. Question four, Brenda. In 1962, Little Eva introduced what new dance? I wasn't even born. Like, um, I wasn't even born. Uh, what could little, little Eva tap dance? Little Eva, yes, was it, it was the locomotion. Oh, yeah, come on, baby, do the locomotion. Was it 1962? Oh, mama, okay. Matthew Bourne has created productions to the ballet scores of Russian composers Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev, but I would like to know which of the two composed more ballets in their lifetime. Tchaikovsky or Prokofiev? Uh, Prokofiev is not the answer. Yes, it, no, is. it is the answer. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Prokofiev um, composed eight and Tchaikovsky only did three. Question number six, staying with the Russian theme, the Bolshoi Ballet at the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow is one of the best known ballet companies. But what does the word Bolshoi mean? Bold, bold, beautiful, brilliant. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> no. <laughs> Sadly, none of those things, beginning with B. Uh, you were close, though. It is big. Big. big oh, theater. my brain is so Bolshoi. You are <laughs> so Bolshoi, true. Paul. <laughs> my ego is so uh, Bolshoi. You know, it's not after this. Lots, 
lockdown's not been kind to me, Brenda, so, you know. No, or me, judging by this quiz <laughs> results. <laughs> uh, question number seven. What are Hamilton House and Petronella? Hamilton House. Hamilton House. And Petronella. Take a guess. Petronella sounds like a flower. <laughs> Scottish country dances. Question number eight. What was the name of the beguiling gypsy dancer in The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Her name wasn't Oh Jesus. Um, <laughs> Sadly, no. I can't remember. No. Emma, Emma, I don't know. Sadly, Come on no, then, Paul, tell me. Been. Wish it had been Emma. It was Esmeralda, close to Emma. Oh, I should have Esmeralda. guessed that. Yeah, from the Disney film, that's how I know. Um, we're almost there, Brenda. The pain is almost over. Question number nine. Which 20th century ballerina was later edible? Think a really Not famous really. Australian dessert. Australian dessert? What's an Australian dessert? I'm going to have to Australian. ask for an answer. All right, then. Um, je ne sais pas. It was, je ne sais pas. It was Pavlova. Anna Pavlova. Oh, Pavlova. Pavlova. Pavlova, yeah. Yeah. Which is really famous in well, Australia. Maybe I'll throw you off the scent. You can see popular culture is obviously more my thing. <laughs> Last question. <laughs> question number 10, Brenda. According to folklore, which hypnotic dance can cure a spider's bite? Now I'm going to give you a clue. The clue is in the spider. Spider. So it's not a spider. Black widow's my tarantula. Oh, ta oh, what's that? That tar Tarantella? Or something like that. Yes! Tarantella? Yes! Yes! I've probably got about no one, three. No one's got that right. Bottom so of the leaderboard. Well, let me let me tell you. Well, that was that fun. You, I mean, I was appalling, yeah. but that was fun. No you, no, you weren't appalling at all. And like you said, it's all about the the taking part and learning new things. Um. So so far, I answered five on the university challenge once. Sitting here good. watching the telly. That's good. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, to, sadly today. Just you only throw that in. <laughs> Sadly, today you're only four, <laughs> four out of ten, which places you at third place um, behind Sir Matthew Bourne and Miss Ashley Shaw. Um, but I, there's I no surprise. You, you don't want to upstage Sir Matthew Bourne, do you? You're just being, you were just downplaying. No, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a good look. No. And Ashley, a beautiful and brains, is that really allowed? She, she's got it all. I know. She's got it all. Brenda Emanis, thank you so, so much for giving your time and coming to chat to me today on Born to Dance. It's been such a pleasure to delve into your amazing career and your wonderful passion for the arts. Thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.